Welcome to the University of the Free State Career Services Podcast, where we talk to experts about the ins and outs of jobs and share tips that will give you a grip on your future career. I'm Belinda Janneke, and today in our virtual studio, I have with me Dr. Martin Clark. Welcome, and thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm very happy to join you, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm very curious uh, how I can talk about uh, what my lab's doing and, and what you might find interesting about it. Great stuff. So before we unpack your job, and uh, because this is now specifically in geology, tell me about the best day in your career to date. Uh, that's a tough one. Um, you know, uh, I would love to give you some cheesy answer, like every day is my best day. Um, but uh, one thing that I can share is when I started my lab and I took on my first students, um, that was probably the best day because I, I started to see a vision form and I started to see that there's something that others could benefit from and then derive their own careers from. And uh, my dad is also an academic and he had a very long career and he would always talk to me about his students being his, um, his most uh, appreciated developments in what he's done. So I can truly see that in my own life, I, um, I'm finding the same things out as well. So how did geology happen to you or with you? Believe it or not, um, when, when I went to school, I wanted to, to be a chemist. And then uh, I got into to university and then I realized chemistry and I, we didn't uh, get along as well as I thought we would. But um, what happened was, is uh, when I was growing up, my dad used to take me uh, mineral hunting. Uh, I have photos from when I was four and five years old looking for uh, unique samples that I could take home and add to our mineral collection. And when I was a little bit lost in my first year of my undergraduate, I reached out to a geology professor and I said, hey, I understand you're, you're in town, you're on sabbatical, can I come work for you for free? And uh, he responded to me and said, uh, well, um, for your summer, I'm, I'm not actually in town, but uh, you're welcome to work with me through the semester. And then um, if you want, you can come work with me in Europe um, for the summer. And ever since then, I completely switched my major over and uh, I became a geologist. That is so cool. I'm thinking now immediately, where, where did this all start? Like, where did you go to school? Um, where did you graduate? What was this career path looking like? So, uh, yeah, uh, you can tell from my accent, I'm not South African, although I'm, I'm very happy to be in South Africa. Prior to talking about where I'm from, I will say that um, South Africa is a very unique country when it comes to the rocks that are here. Um, it's not just the mineral wealth that they contain, but it's about the history of the planet that we have um, and the variety of processes that are exposed in what is relatively a, a rather small country compared to the one that I'm from. Um, but uh, that's said, um, I'm originally from Canada. I come from Ontario, so close to Toronto, if you know uh, the Canadian geography well. And uh, I did uh, my bachelor and my master's degree at a university called McMaster University. Um, this was close to my hometown, and this was a place uh, where I had access to, to good studies, but I also had access to, to expand my, my geological understanding through the rocks that were available to me uh, locally there. 
Um, and uh, I worked a few summers in mineral exploration, um, essentially uh, walking through the woods, um, banging on rocks, being chased by bears, and uh, starting to develop an appreciation for what people go through to, to find things like, like nickel and copper and other things that uh, industries rely on. After that, uh, I swore I wouldn't do any more academics. I was done with academia and I was going to get a job. But I had the unfortunate, fortunate event of graduating during a, a mineral price downturn, uh, meaning um, new hires weren't a thing at mining companies. Um, mm. So after a little bit of soul searching, um, I got an opportunity to, to take a uh, PhD overseas and I moved to Germany uh, and uh, to do my PhD at the University of Hamburg. And then after that, uh, as a, a newly uh, minted uh, doctorate, I went back to Canada uh, and it was only about a, a year before I heard uh, of opportunity to come to the University of the Free State. Um, I came as a postdoc and since then I, I started my research lab. Um, I have been promoted to senior lecturer and I've essentially made uh, my research career and my research home here. That is quite an amazing journey as well. I'm, I'm now thinking also again about your magic lab and how did you start that? So, um, the, so first off, the magic lab is a very unique lab in our institution because it all centers around cameras and imaging. And uh, uh, not that not that the audience can see this, but um, I can see you through the screen. You can see me through the screen. And for instance, I see a wonderful green screen behind you. And you know that with that green screen, you can create any type of background you would want. Well, um, my lab specializes in using cameras uh, of different um, of different types to be able to see things, um, but see things beyond what your eye may be able to see. So, for instance, um, if you have enough images of, of certain rocks, you can create their 3D geometry. You can completely digitally recreate a mountain range or a valley or whatever it is. Uh, if you have cameras that can see beyond color, you could end up seeing everything from chlorophyll content in plants to, to um, uh, saturation or, or, or um, availability of water or not availability of water. Um, but also when it comes to rocks, you can actually map rocks um, that you might have three rocks in front of you that are all gray rocks. But um, using a special camera, you can say exactly what one is, what its mineral content is, and maybe a little bit more about it. So um, that's that's what magic is. But how magic came about? Um, magic stands for, and it's a terrible acronym, um, yeah. the Marinsky Airborne Geological Image Classification Group. Um, so uh, I much prefer magic. And um, it, it came about... There was a, a funding opportunity by the, the Hans Marinsky Foundation. And the Hans Marinsky Foundation is one uh, that I believe it's now, it's the Hans Marinsky Legacy Foundation, is one that I think needs to have more visibility in the country. And, and you might know Hans Marinsky if you've spent much time in Palabora or up in Limpopo. Um, but um, Hans Marinsky was one of the most effective South African geologists that have existed. If we're talking about the vast platinum wealth that we have in the country, um, the main reef in Rustenburg that hosts that platinum is called the Marinsky Reef. Um, when it comes to finding gold in the Free State or diamonds along the coast, 
Uh, he was involved in establishing those types of um, operations. Uh, he was an advisor to people like um, Ernest Oppenheimer, and uh, the town of Palabora wouldn't exist without him. Well, I, I'm speaking about a very uh, effective um, geologist and a very effective proponent of scientific and industrial development of the country. But what he did when he passed is he turned his um, his uh, fortune into a foundation to then support various initiatives for the betterment of the country. And there's a, several of these initiatives, but I had the opportunity to apply for one a few years ago. And um, uh, that is the, the main support for the Magic Lab and why the M exists in magic, is because the way that he brought uh, new ways to look at the rocks and a very analytical eye to being able to, um, to test something, to experiment, and then industrialize it, uh, is how magic aims to develop new technologies to make industries, specifically the mining and groundwater exploration industries, um, better, faster and safer through using technologies which may not be fully adopted yet. Dr. Clark, if we then have a look at South Africa, how is this, what, what kind of projects are you involved in and how is this relevant then in the South African context? What kind of work would, would somebody in the audience now recognize, one of our listeners? So um, th there's two types of projects that are our lab runs, and um, both of them were designed because of problems that South Africans deal with uh, from a day to day, but also um, the types of industries that South Africa is, is largely established on. So um, the first one I'll talk about is the, the mining environment is um, we have mines, some of which are doing extremely well and they're growing and some of which aren't. And um, part of that is if, if you have a mine, um, you have a life of mine to, to take out whatever ore is there, uh, which you should be doing in uh, the most uh, environmentally friendly and non-invasive way possible. Um, but also you need to be able to explore for um, added opportunities to know, okay, how do I ensure that we have jobs that um, uh, will be in place not only for the next maybe five, 10 years, but maybe for the next 50 to 100 years. So um, one style of project we run is we try and look at the effective using ultra high resolution cameras on drones and on uh, on satellites to be able to assist our ability to say what is the mineral wealth in the earth how is it distributed and um, if we understand that then you can define very uh, in a much easier manner how you'd go about exploring, identifying, and potentially um, turning that into a commodity or, or actually mining that. The other element uh, of the lab is being able to also improve our ability to understand groundwater. And uh, we know very well that South Africa is a semi-arid nation. If you've ever driven from Bloemfontein to, to Cape Town, um, the drive can be quite boring for the first six to seven hours of it. But what isn't always well understood is these are communities that don't have access to freshwater sources, um, uh, or not, not consistent access to freshwater sources. So many people are reliant on boreholes. Uh, many municipalities, if they don't have well-established boreholes, will rely on trucking and um, water supplies for inhabitants and industries. Well, um, we're also using our cameras uh, on drones and, and on satellites to be able to try and understand 
where groundwater is and where boreholes should go to access that. And uh, that's very much of a question of architecture. Um, if you think of a building, you have doors, you have walls, and you know um, if there was a leak in one room and imagine a door seals it completely. You won't know it's a leak until you open that door and the water rushes out. Um, well, the earth is very much like this as well, as you have rocks which allow water to flow, and then you have rocks which prevent water to flow, just like the walls um, in the rooms where we are. So if we can understand what the distribution and the effect of these types of rocks are, you can start to understand, oh, well, if I drill in this room or in, on this property, I should be able to have a borehole that's, that's highly producing because I have evidence for that. Um, but if I were to drill, just maybe it's just meters across on another property, we might have that door blocking it and you might not get any water whatsoever. So um, our lab focuses in those two respective spheres is how do we use uh, imaging technologies to be able to understand rocks better and their behavior with regard to the minerals within and also within their effect to, to water, which we need to support the industries and people who live across the country. I'm immediately thinking of various careers. You are talking about this entire project and the whole time I'm thinking, is only a geologist doing this? I'm immediately thinking of maybe an engineer needs to be involved here. Maybe there are more uh, fields or industries that needs to be involved here. What else, if it's not geology, what other careers can then sort of like be pulled in with? Who are you working? What other type of fields? Oh, so... So um, I, I work, uh, I really do work across campus because um, my, although I'm a geologist, MAGIC is very much an interdisciplinary group where we might not just be looking at rocks, we might be looking at um, how rocks, how vegetation grows on rocks and how the vegetation might talk about something within those rocks. Um, so. Uh, I'm not the only person looking at how these technologies can be used. Uh, our natural and agricultural faculty has a variety um, of stakeholders in um, the groundwater exploration space, in the precision agriculture and the agricultural development space. Uh, we also have our experts in how do we uh, appropriately plan and use land um, so that we use land for what it should be. If there's land without access to, uh, say, uh, a great water source that's close by, then there's no reason to have a water intensive crop grow on top of that land. So um, it's not a it's not about um, finding a, a stakeholder and trying to give them the best possible solution, but it's more about trying to understand uh, the nature of the rocks and the landscapes that we have to be able to ensure we use that to the best of, uh, of our ability. Um, but I can tell you very strongly, I'm not the only person on campus. And um, on campus, I'm also uh, affiliated with the Interdisciplinary Center for Digital Futures. And this is a center on campus that looks to connect um, the traditionally technological with the traditionally non-technological. So we're finding, just like um, just like you've alluded to various stakeholders, we're finding that you can have um, such incredible findings come out of disciplines when you step out of your own discipline and when you do liaise with people who you might not uh, normally liaise with. And I can give you an example is um, I, I have many discussions um, with our Department of Film Studies on campus because I spend a lot of time looking through a camera on a drone. Um, but I want to understand how someone who actually understands various perspectives and different types of, uh, of visual material, 
um, what further insights could actually be extracted from that? Rather than me just wanting to know what a rock looks like, um, I also want to know how someone would look through that lens who's not necessarily a geologist and how that that uh, information uh, could mean something um, uh, monumental to them that I might completely miss. So um, in, in any science, it's so important that you're, you're constantly talking to people um, who you might not understand uh, their discipline and they might not understand yours, but you'll find very quickly that there are parallels that if you didn't have that conversation would never come to light and they would never form a, a, a new thing to study or a new paradigm or, or a new topic to understand. That gives us a new definition to group work. I think our mm. students don't see group work necessarily in that way, uh, but this shows the networking and so on that we need to be on top of that to have our work flourish. While we were talking about the UFS now, let's bring it closer to home. What kind of projects are you running on campus and how can students get involved? I'll, I'll highlight one project for you, which um, recently finished. And um, I study, when I came to South Africa, I didn't study, came here to study drones. I came here to study meteorite impact craters or meteorite impact structures. And you might know of the, the Freighter Fort Dome or the Freighter Fort Kupel, um, but it's one of the, the oldest and one of the largest meteorite impact structures on the planet. So um, I wanted to study how does this thing evolve over time? And um, through using some drones on, on a previous um, uh, uh, project, we were looking at indications of how these rocks might have bend and broke. Just doing a single study like that, um, we were able to come up with indications that um, the current accepted um, understanding for how these rocks may have, have deformed over tens of thousands of years actually didn't. It deformed in another way. And um, that was something that an honor student did in my lab last year. And uh, she presented in, in Stellenbosch um, just earlier, er, earlier in January. It also touches some very long-standing issues. And I can tell you that geologists are very hard nuts to crack. Um, it's, it's not just that, the, that their heads are full of rocks, but um, it's that a geologist is very skeptical of what they're told until they can see something that supports it. It's, it's not uncommon for you to describe something that you think is fascinating and a geologist will say, I don't believe you, show me the rocks. Well, what I've found is when you can take um, uh, photos of those rocks at resolutions that are down to sub-millimeter, you can end up, even if that geologist who doesn't believe you sits in Japan or sits in Germany or sits in the US, you can show them the rocks, and uh, it's a very good way to 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 show um, evidence for types of um, geological processes. And uh, I did this uh, recently up in Limpopo, trying to understand how those rocks essentially bend and broke. And uh, it ended up becoming um, a pivotal component of a, a paper that was just accepted. So um, understanding the type of people you you work with and the type of community where you work you, you need to learn how you need to um, endeavor to ensure that you're proving what you want to prove um, because we all want to make the world a better place it's just everyone has their own idea how to do that so um uh, even if 10 years down the road someone finds uh information uh with with a new device that uh contradicts what i've shared 
at least the paradigm has evolved to a point where I was able to give my contribution to it so I could take that story along, well, as, as far as I could. I must now ask the honest students or the honest student of last year, what did they discover if it wasn't then what you thought it was? So uh, I, I, when you have old, old processes, um, geological processes or, or old events on the planet, often you don't find them because they are, they're overwritten. Either they're eroded away through time, the wind and the rain will slowly take apart those rocks and um, they're no longer there for study, or um, those rocks get pulled back into um, the mantle of the earth. If it's in an ocean, the oceanic plates go underneath continents. So there's only a certain amount of that things are, are exposed so that you could actually study them. So when you're studying um, impact craters, the one that's in South Africa is about just over 2 billion years old. Um, a lot of things can happen to that in 2 billion years. And um, a very common thing to happen is a continent will smack into another continent, a mountain will go up, and if a mountain goes up as two continents collide, um, you end up having certain, um, certain ways the rocks break. Essentially, you have rocks pushed over um, or under other rocks. And what this honors student was able to show was the rocks where we where we would expect this pushing to occur actually indicated that there was pulling instead of pushing and that pulling goes completely against the idea of a continent collision causing um, some sort of break or bend of the rocks of this impact structure. So that was a, a very important thing to find out. You need to be able to suggest something like that, is you need tangible evidence. Um, and we were able to go in, we were able to take measurements, and we were able to come up with a full 3D model of saying, here is the orientation of all of these different structures all of these different uh, breaks. Here is the information we could collect on them. And um, our data, irregardless of how we process it, suggests that um, there is no pushing, there's only pulling going on. Ah, because I wanted to get to that. <laughs> like, what was it then? You see, so that so we are still discovering things as we go along as well. That is very exciting. You have mentioned quite a lot about the drones. And I assume somebody needs to fly that. How does that work? How are you involved? Yes. So drones is a very complex topic in South Africa um, because every country has their own uh, regulations on how these technologies can be used. Um, and South Africa has um, one of the safest um, civil aviation authorities um, that exist on the planet. Um, so uh, just in, in the capacity of being safe, to be able to operate drones, especially big drones, um, you need to be appropriately licensed. So I'm a, I'm a certified drone pilot um, within the country, and I'm, I'm certified on flying drones that look like the ones you regularly see with the, the four blades. Um, I also can fly uh, planes, um, remote planes, uh, and I can also fly uh, not seeing it, but actually flying off of the instruments. So um, that's important because I can fly beyond my visual line of sight. So um, 
What that means is um, to be able to use a drone to study large phenomena. Um, you can think of uh, a massive flat area in the Karoo, or you can think of the Cape Fold Belt. Um, you might need to collect data over two square kilometers. You might need to collect data over 100 square kilometers. Um, by certifying as a pilot, um, I know how to operate um, the appropriate types of drones to be able to collect data uh, in a safe and compliant manner. So um, we're all worried about how drones can be used in, in illegal manners or inappropriate manners. But um, you'd be pleased to know that there's very stringent regulation around how one can operate these, these platforms. So um, to operate a drone, you need to be a certified pilot. The drone needs to be certified um, with the, the Civil Aviation Authority. And then the company or the institution that operates that drone also needs to be certified. So it's not it's not something that you go to your, your local store, you, you pick up a drone and then you're ready to run with it. Um, but it, it's very important that um, you go through these steps because you know, you can talk about a drone that you can buy from from Macro, um, and you might spend, um, say, 20,000 Rand on the drone. Well, um, we're starting to use drones that are that really go up upwards of, of half a million Rand plus. And, and especially when you're operating with something like that, you're using a very specialized camera system. Um, you don't want to just take a Ferrari for a, a test drive if you don't have a driver's license yet. So um, similar to, to that, um, or in relation to that, we want to be able to show the country that um, it's possible to be doing research with these implements in a compliant uh, manner because um, we want to be able to have drones that can survey the entire country constantly. If there's a landslide or even a, a an idea that a landslide might happen, we want to be able to pick that up days, weeks, or months in advance. Um, if we're working in in mining areas or if there's towns um, in mountainous areas, it's important to know that that mountain isn't going to collapse or that wall of the mine isn't going to fall over uh, because uh, a drone, uh, you, you can rebuild, you can buy another one, but you can't replace a person. Um, so making sure that we're working um, in a safer manner is uh, is really something that um, is driven by um, making sure that we, we understand what um, rules exist to operate drones compliantly, but it's also to know that there are many dangerous jobs out there that we want to be incorporating this technology in to help them. Um, and uh, there's kind of, there, we have two mottos in the Magic Lab, but one of them is we want to make these industries better, faster, and safer. Better in the type of data that you collect, faster in terms of how well you can turn around, you can collect data and then use that data, and safer, whether it's um, for operators who work where, where rock bursts can happen, or whether it's in areas where um, um, we want to understand where people are getting their water from and where how the water is flowing and where potential pollutants can come in. So um, those are all within the realm of magic, but uh, it all stems from making sure that we're establishing a group that, that operates with this technology sustainably, uh, compliantly, and uh, in, the, in um, the support for 
a variety of different types of research that our institution and other institutions um, are embarked on. I wish I can just spend another eight hours with you just unpacking all of this. This is like almost information overload for me. But I love, absolutely love that there are so many other industries involved in here or other fields. And I've always said that IT for me was always the field that has possibilities within possibilities within another part. And now I'm, if I'm listening to you, I'm like, wow, this is geography. This is mineral waters or groundwaters, uh, uh, mining, et cetera, et cetera. It must be super interesting working with all these various fields as well on a daily basis. We have already uh, uh, spoken about, you know, your studies and how, how that sort of like all escalated up until this point. But what makes you good at your job? If you have to, and I've listened now to so many things that you are busy with, but what makes you good in your job? Yeah, that's hard for me to answer. Um, I, I feel like I should direct you either to, to my boss or my wife. Um, <laughs> but um, if I were to, to try and answer it, there, there's two things. The first thing is that uh, I'm quite persistent. Um, and uh, perhaps others would use another term um, in replace of that. But um, it's really that if I set my mind to be able to, to, to accomplish a goal, um, I really don't stop until I find an avenue that will, will work. Um, so, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is I know so many absolutely incredible academics um, who are brilliant in what they do. And I have never considered myself brilliant in what I do. Um, but that means that every day I always want to be a little bit better than I was the day before. So um, by I, I always want to reach out to people who can provide mentorship or guidance in areas where I know I'm not um, going to be able to, to carry the torch. But um, I also know that by, by doing that, I'm able to, um, I'm able to bring a lot to, to certain collaboration tables that wasn't existing there before because um, uh, my skills might lie uh, in, a different, in a different area. Yeah, so it sounds like there's an inquisitive and a, a curious mindset that you need to have in this type of job. Painfully so, yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so no job is just good. Everything that you have shared now sounded to me like, yes, sign me up for it. But not, not everything is always good. What is the hard or mundane part of your work? The most, so finding out new things is exciting. Um, being able to, to process data and to see what that data indicates is exciting. But um, no one, and this is very much the, the iceberg um, um, uh, metaphor, which is you, you don't actually see how much of a runway exists prior to getting to that exciting conclusion. So um, it may be figuring out how to appropriately articulate or motivate um, an application, or uh, it may be, you know, it may be just the weather when you go out one day and the sun is just uh, not, it's too hot or uh, it's raining or, um, you know, I was out a few weeks ago and it was spiders everywhere. Um, so 
Um, those types of things aren't necessarily what um, what excite me when I want to be seeing the rocks. But um, to, to, to think of something mundane, I don't know if there is mundane. Because um, when, when you make the decision to run and chase interesting topics, um, you know, you know in your, your, your mind and in your heart why you do the job you do. Um, and when you finally get to that, uh, that conclusion, that answer, um, I wish I could share that there was excitement. But for me, there's relief knowing that I spent all that time to come to an answer and that there is one at the end of the day. So uh, <laughs> I wish I could give you something more mundane. But, uh, but I, can, I can really just say um, being able to uh, accomplish those outputs uh, being able to understand the way rocks are behaving or groundwater is moving or whatever it is um, ends up uh, making up for whatever bad days might come along along the way. Dr. Clark, up next, we've got our fire questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. Coffee or tea? Coffee. Sweet or salty? Sweet. Remote or on-site? On-site. Every morning, I... Drink too much coffee. My favorite word is? Well, this one I'm, I'm struggling with, but I would have to say cognizant uh, because I use it far too often and I've scared many students putting it in lectures. <laughs> well, I wanted to end off, I think probably one of your favorite words is that better, faster and safer, which I have also learned from your magic lab. Dr. Clark, thank you so much for also joining us today. I really appreciate your time. And um, if somebody wants more information about the magic lab, where can they go to? So we're currently putting together our, our website, but um, you can find the Magic Lab in the Department of Geology. Um, my office is there and they're welcome to come by and talk to me about it. Wonderful. Thank you so much. That's it for now. Listen to all our episodes to make sure that you get into the fast lane of career success.